0: Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrul. I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Port The T-Shirt Podcast. Chris, how are you brother? Good, Good to see you Chris. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Uh, great pleasure and a
0: great honour, I must say. Wow, I mean, the honour's all mine, mate. Um, chatting to Vicey the other day, and uh, you were very much in my thoughts from your wonderful documentary work, which certainly, unlike other documentaries, has put the Royal Marines in, uh, let's just say, the light that we like to, you know, think of ourselves. <laughs>
1: well, you know, it's, when I first discovered the Royal Marines, um, I've been working for years, 25 years actually, this year, I've been working with the Royal Navy on various things, filming. And I, I, I was always aware of the Royal Marines. My first ever series, HMS Brilliant, 1995, um, that's when I first came across Bootnecks. I thought, what a weird bunch. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, but, but I was intrigued by that brotherhood and that, that sort of, I don't know, the culture. And uh, gradually this grew in my mind. I wanted to know more and more and more about these, this special breed of people. And uh, so then I asked permission um, of the Royal Marines to come in and make a, a film from within. And it took a lot of doing, but I eventually got my way. And I've never looked back. It changed my life. You know, it, it really has transformed the way I live and the way I think about living and life. It's, uh, and, and I've made, above all, I've made the most amazing friends. That's what it's all about,
0: really. And we should, we should interject here and just say you're a world record holder, not, not that I want to go down that cheesy route, but, I mean, you actually are for being probably the oldest person that's gone through commando training, and also as a civilian. Do you want to tell us about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, when I, when I uh, made my first series about the Royal Marines, Commander on the Front Line we called it. Um, the idea was very simple really, go into Limpston day one with a with a recruit troop, 924 troop as it happened, follow the boys through, and of course they were boys mostly, and they came in sp- spotty youths, um, and go through watch what's their training, what's that transformation from spotty youth to grizzled, chiseled man at the other end with a green lead on his head. Um, and it very quickly became apparent to me that the only way of doing that was to get in there with them, because I could have just stood on the sidelines and watched and observed from a distance, but I think that would not have worked in the way that I wanted it to. I'm an anthropologist by training, and... We often practice a methodology called participant observation. You observe by participating. I've often done that. I've done a lot of work in Africa with tribal groups. You take part in the hunts. You take part in life as it as it's lived, and that's that way you understand much more through the eyes of the people themselves. And that's what I thought I, I had to do with with the uh, young bootneck recruits. I asked permission. I said, "Look, this is, this is a big ask, but can I go through training with them?" If not, the, you know, I wasn't a combatant. I wasn't going out to fight with a gun, I shoot with a camera. But I've always prided myself, I kept myself pretty fit, and I said, can I at least begin to go through the training in the early days with the recruits, partly because I want to understand what they're going through, and also partly so that they would perhaps accept me, this old guy coming into their world um, with a camera. And sometimes you've got to break that barrier down, you know. And they said, "Okay, Chris, we'll have it a go. Have, give it a go." But you—you you fail, you're out. You know, we don't we're not make any exceptions. Um, you could get injured, in which case you're buggered because you're going to end up in Hunter Tree, or the product's going to fall, you know, fall down flat. Uh, and if you fail any of the tests along the way, um, you know that's it—you failed. So uh, I thought, well, okay, we'll, we'll give it a go. I thought i will do a few weeks, but then you know what happens—you get. You get in there. You get you get that sense of being one of the boys, and you you wanna you wanna crack bottom field. You wanna crack the full regain, which I very nearly didn't, by the way. And then onto Tarzan assault course and blah blah blah. And then of course the prize, that ultimate prize, the iconic green berry, became so big in my mind that that's that it, it was all about that. So I just got sort of pulled into it, really, and and that and the special ethos, which I I like to think I still live by, uh, I was introduced to by the train the inc- incredible training tr- group who uh, who well, I'm still friends with. Them. So yeah, I was just, I was just pulled in at the, at the age of 55. Um, people, <laughs> it's funny, people still come up to me in the street sometimes. They say, "Well, you yeah, aren't you the 55 year old commander?" I say, yeah. I mean, the fact that I'm now in my late sixties is neither here nor there. Forever fifty-five. That's the way.
0: <laughs> hey, that's a great. That's a great uh, place to stay.
1: <laughs> no, but it you know it it wasn't a TV stunt, even though they made a film about it. It was very much to understand the way a bootneck thinks, especially as the plan was not only to go through training with the boys, but the ones that came through to get the green Greenberry to pass out within three weeks, they and I, I with them were in Afghanistan on the front line. So it was, it, it was, it wasn't a stunt. It was very, very serious um, situation.
0: Yes. Yeah, so I think to those of us that watched and certainly those of us that have been there, it never, you know, it, it's commander training. That's it. There, there's no stunt, you know, it's, it's far more respected what you did than dishing out these honorary green berries to people that
1: oh no it it was important for me to 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 win that on on merit if you like Uh, and you know at first the lads think it was thought it was a bit of it was a bit weird having this old geezer old enough to be a father even grandfather in some cases Uh, but the only way i got through that chris and you'll understand this Mm. is because the lads wanted me to get through ultimately you know you work as a team you, you've got to pass your test. You've got to pass bottom field. You've got to do all that yourself. But it's much easier when you've got people rooting for you. Uh, and I failed bottom field first time. I was gutted. And I thought I wasn't going to make it. Uh, and and it, was, it was full regain. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. And I would have been out. But I, on my retake, um, they, their boys all came down. And they, they wheeled me onto that bloody rope and i and i made it i kicked up hooked on got onto the top of the bloody thing at which point i cheered my head off nearly fell into the fucking tank
0: (laughs) so for our for our friends at home can you just explain what what a half regain and a full regain is then i'm going to trump your story because that's what we do in the marines we (laughs) um this is something uh, civilians don't often understand i'm not trying to better chris's story it's now my duty is to tell my story, and it's got to be a bit more extreme. <laughs> so yeah, come back again. <laughs> no, but the, the, the regain—it's—it's um,
1: it's horrendous actually, and it was—it was my nemesis, was the one thing I feared more than anything else. Um, and, may, and maybe that's part of it. If you fear something, you know, it's going to get you. No, it's—it's um, it's basically climbing a, a, across a, a rope, in, in this case, across a water tank on your belly with your legs hanging down pulling yourself along like that you then have to fall off it if you like hanging uh, like that and then regain yourself onto the rope it's a very special specialized technique it's quite tricky um, to get back on the rope and to um, proceed a half regain you don't come all the way off you come up you just come off halfway but the full regain you've got to you've got to done a full regain in order to be allowed to progress with your training and uh, that's what nearly got
0: me i think but, we should point out if you're in a warfare situation or combat you know if you can't do that regain, really you're dead because <laughs> you've probably just fallen down a, a canyon or yeah. into the water when you're trying to secretly board a ship so it, it you have to be able to do it right
1: and a lot a lot to do with upper body strength of course and and, and, and technique but um, so it's a about confidence as well and when you go on from there chris as you know you proceed to to Tarzan assault course, which is all high wire stuff. And if you if you fall, you're, you're probably dead. You're certainly badly injured. So it's important a bit to um, to to manage to do this. And, uh, and thank God I did. But anyway, come on then, trump me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it just it's a silly story. But I came from home from school one day, Chris. Right, when I was I was about five. Maybe I might have been seven. My dad had built me a climbing frame out of scaffolding poles and it was the size of our house. In fact, he bolted it to the walls of our end terraced house, complete with rope swing. So my weekends were just spent being Tarzan. Right. (laughs) Fast forward to Limston, you know, however many years later, whatever, 15 years later, not even that, probably 13 years later. I'm on that pass out that you say the bottom field pass out. The bottom field being where you you do all the the assault course and and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and it it was my turn to cross the tank and do my full regain. And usually there's a big entourage there cheering you on and watching. And will this guy make it? Is and you you kind of know the guys that are going to struggle and you 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 hope that they do it, but you know. 50% of the time they drop into the water and you know that they're then back trooped. So my turn came when I went out on the rope and I was crawling and I went underneath like you do let yeah. go with my legs. I swung down. Then I think you've got to, to pause and hold it there. And then you've got to start swinging to get back up. So I swung, I swung, I swung, I went up, I just climbed straight back on the rope. I didn't do any of the elbow over, you know, swing your leg like this. I just, I just, I literally, it was like, I went like that. And you've got to remember there's a bit of sort of swing in that rope, which kind of, it just worked with my body. And I'm actually really glad nobody saw because probably had the training team seen or the PTI would have gone, oi, no, do that again, <laughs> right? But there was only one lad who was watching and he went, fucking hell, <laughs> because it's unheard of. It's, it's one of the most t- toughest tests in the Marines. And I just swang down and just swang back up and I carried on as though, um, Yes, and I, I thank my uh, my father for that. It's jammy, right. jammy, Chris. <laughs> did you um, have to do the pass out parade, Chris? What what happens there? I, I did, in that I had to film it, so I was there, um, but
1: filming it. Mm-hmm. So, so I didn't pass out as as one of the recruits did, as the recruits did. Uh, so, but I was I was there and best bib and tucker, but with a camera on my shoulder um and because with the lads that passed out um yeah as i said i went back, i was out went out to afghan with them yeah less than three weeks later
0: my god so you are bonded by blood sweat and tears with these boys and then you're you're in a theater of war with them three weeks later
1: yeah that was an extraordinary thing
0: back 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 in the back then
1: it was and the, the lads knew and they were told when they first joined up in week one Um, you will, those of you who get through this, this rite of passage, this, this, you know, the hardest basic military training in the world, um, you will, without any doubt at all, be on the front line within three weeks of passing out. Mm. Um, And and in in, in a couple of cases, even earlier, because the battlefield casualties had to be replaced. Uh, So, yeah, it was was extraordinary. Uh, And um, I, I, in fact, I was... I actually went out earlier than that, in the Christmas break of my training 32 weeks. The lads went home, and I went out for three weeks to Afghan with one of the YOs, one of the young officers, Bertie Carr, who, who went out again two weeks after he passed out, and I went with him. because I was, passing, I was, I was um, following a, a couple of YOs as well, and he was out on the front line after th- three weeks from passing out, leading a troop, leading, leading a company, Actually, um, in a in a full full assault against a, uh, an, an insurgency stronghold, and it was just extraordinary what these guys did. And but you, the training kicked in, you know, and and even to a to much smaller extent, myself. I, I the other the other reason for doing a training, apart from bonding with the lads, was to learn a little bit about warfare and tactics so so that i could look after myself up to a point i didn't have to have people looking after me because one of the big problems i think with guys going out with cameras journalists whatever going out to the front line is that they become a bit of a liability if they don't know what they're doing because they have to be looked after if you're looking after a sodding journalist you're not looking after yourself so, so much or you're not fighting so i was very aware of that um but then, and subsequently, I think because of my background and because people could at least trust me to do what I was told, or, or trust me to follow an order, that I was allowed to go into slightly more, um, so we say, dangerous uh, situations where 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 you know I got some great stories and was able to tell tell the, my public, um, I, I hope hopefully a little bit more accurately what, what war is like. Mm
0: when i passed out our um our commander when he gave his speech to our company commander uh, and he's talking to the families to the parents and the wives and the girlfriends and this kind of thing and in some case children uh in fact no i think we're all too young to have children and i know they've raised the age now haven't they it's something quite high now like 33 you can join up still yeah back when i was in that was something like 25 and if you were 25 i don't think i ever met a 25 year old creep but there was a 23 year old one (laughs) it was like a granddad (laughs) It it was kind of uncanny we're all just children and you got this guy with a big mustache and it was but um, yeah, our, our company commander giving the, 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 the speech and he said, um, and he gave the example, he said back in 1982, within something like two weeks of passing out of recruit training, such and such a troop were fighting in the Falklands. And, and that was like, yeah. I'm not going to say it was shocking. It, it's just it's a reality, you know. It's a reality. Yeah. Lo and behold, sixteen weeks later, I was in combat or, or was in the, um, you know, seeing active service in the Northern Ireland conflict, and it. Yeah, it all gets very real, doesn't it?
1: It does, and I think one one of the things that I found out, and Sydney, it's not sort of one of the lads found out, was that when you go into start training you're thinking wow yeah let me get out let me get out and start you know fighting um because that's what it's all about that's what we're there for to do but actually when the rounds start coming down um it, 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 there's a new reality kicks in war is is horrific war is nasty you might be good at it or you might be trained to deal with the, the enemy in, in, in the way that bootlegs do but um once you tasted real war, you know, it's, it, it, it's and it in a sense, it's enjoyable because it's adventurous and you're with your mates, but my God, you see some horror, horrific things. Yeah. Um, I think whilst I'm so proud of my background now with the Royal Marines, so proud of my Green Beret, and so proud of the friends I've made, um, you know, I've, I've lost friends as well, as I'm sure you have, Chris, and it, it's... Um, You know, in fact, you can't see. In fact, if I turn around, can can you see? Can you see that? Yes, I can. Yeah, that's um, that's Orlando Rogers, who was my troop commander. Um, who sadly is no longer with us, but he's always on my wall. He's a great friend. He wasn't actually killed in combat; he died in an air crash. But um, he had two very very um, kinetic tours of, of Afghanistan came through it and then died in an air crash down in pool um but the point is it's that comradeship it's that closeness that's that bonding it's that fraternity that i've never known you know maybe rugby playing days you you get that bond with 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 mate your mates and your fellow players but there's nothing like the bond you get with the guys i trained with and, and accompanied i won't say went to war with i didn't go to war with them i was They were the the soldiers I wasn't. But I was there by their side filming them. And um, I will never forget those men. Uh, But the ones that I'm still in contact with and sadly the the, the few that that were killed. There was one lad, (coughs) Georgie Sparks. He was the youngest, I think, in our troop, 94 troop. And he was probably the weakest of the one of the weakest of the recruits. And everybody thought Georgie would never make it. He'd never get through training. He'd never get through bottom field. He'd never get through whatever. But he had something. He had that bootneck thing of determination. And it was because he wasn't as strong physically as some of the others, he had to work harder. He had to be more determined. And that's why he got the commander medal at the end of at the end of uh, training. Because people were so... Respectful of him, so impressed by his determination to get through, and um, and Georgie, yeah, his dream was to to be a serving Royal Marine, and, and actually he really wanted to help the people of Afghanistan. He was a very deep thinking boy. He was dead within nine months. He was a, a sniper, and he got killed by a rocket propelled grenade. And Orlando, who um, my friend phoned me, he phoned me from Afghanistan to tell me that Georgie had um, been killed. Oh. And, and we buried him. We buried him on what would have been his 20th birthday mm. uh, in, uh, up in Epsom. And I, I had the great honour of reading it, the eulogy. But, uh, my God, that brings it home. That does bring it home.
0: Yeah, it's... Um, it, it, uh, a million words can't really describe it, can they, really, that that reality? Um, yeah. No, no. It, it can't, and of course, then
1: again, I, I know you know, and I watched your your, your great interview with Vicey, the other the poor, poor Vice the other, the other day. Um, it's not just the obviously the people that die; they're, they're gone, and you, you you respect their memory. But lads come back with terrible injuries, like Vicey, um, who who by the, the, the strength of his personality got through it, and and with the help of his mates, of course. Um, but others suffer uh, the, the internal hidden injuries as well, the PTSDs and the anxieties and the night attacks, you know, the, the, and that's a terrible thing to have to live with. And of course we're seeing it bubbling out now increasingly. Everybody talks about PTSD, but actually I think it's, I think after the Falklands, it was about 15 years before the worst of the PTSD bubbled out. And um, that's still happening, of course, post-Afghan.
0: Yes, yeah, certainly. And and the government are virtually turning their backs on veterans. Um, God, there's a whole load of politics, Chris. and I don't really want to go there because probably my listeners have heard me say it all before. But, you know, if you're going to send these young people off to war, you need to look after them when they come back, isn't it? I mean, that's as simple as I can make it. Um, I think you're right, Chris. I, I, and I think um, there's always more can be done about uh, for for the
1: for the boys and girls who who come back injured, either physically or, or emotionally, mentally. I think we're in a better place than we used to be. I mean, my dad, uh, he was a pilot in the Second World War, um, Fleet Air Arm pilot, and he uh, he had he had PTSD, but he had PTSD. We, know, we, we knew that all the way through his, his life. You he died last year. And he still he still had this problem because um, he was he had a he, he crashed and had, was bad, badly injured. But the, the, the real injuries were within. He lost an eye and all sorts of things. But he had this terrible tendency to depression that came from the war. But that wasn't recognised then. Yeah. You know they didn't talk about PTSD. Uh, so I think we are much more aware these days. Yes, more can be done. But I think certainly the public is much more aware that, um, of what. These young people who represent and help to protect our country and protect our allies, and you know, I think um, I think it is. I think it's more recognised than it used to be. That's what I'm saying.
0: Chris, what's it like then landing in a war zone from a a physical perspective? I I imagine you get off the Hercules and there's a barrage of heat and everything. I know you've had lots of life experience before, so you're not a stranger to kind of exotic lands but you're there you're with these young guys the heat hits you and it's like ah this is real now and what's it like going into your your forward operating base
1: oh boy well i mean when i first went out the first tour i did was nine it was 2006 seven i went out over the christmas period so it's uh and that was, um, it, it, the war was slightly different then. It was more of a shooting war. It's more of a, if if you like, though it was anti-insurgency, counter-insurgency operation, it was still fairly conventional in that you had the enemy there, we were there when you were shooting at each other, you had tactics and strategy. And um, we were a place called Kajaki, where there's the, a the big dam we were protecting against the insurgents. Um, and that was advancing through um, i would say rocky desert. I'm always aware that you are being watched, but we weren't then concerned about IEDs, improvised explosive devices. It, it wasn't it wasn't really in the game in two thousand um, and six, two thousand and seven. And there were ambushes, and we you know we were ambushed, and and that's the first taste of action I had when the the bullets started. You know the tracer bullets were coming over the horizon, and it, it, it was um, all hell let loose. Then the rocket propelled grenades came in. And, but you kind of were trained to deal with the situation and you got on with it. Come Fast forward to my second tour, which was in 2011, in Nadi Ali North, which is uh, uh, in, in Helmand province. But then, by then, it was all IEDs. It doesn't matter what tactics you use. It wasn't, it wasn't down to strategy. It was down to pure bloody luck. You had to go out every day on patrol um, to show to show that you were willing to go out on patrol rather than hide away in the base. And you you didn't know whether you're going to come back. You didn't know whether you're going to survive your next footstep. Um, you know the point man was was you know anybody going point was the far brave bravest bloke in the world. Um, <clears throat> so it was uh, it was very very. Sobering. Uh, it really sharpened the mind, and um, yeah. I mean, I just concentrated. To be honest, on my my job. I, I had a job to do. I was filming. I was trying to capture the story and tell it as best best way I could. And I found it much easier to deal with the potential danger to just concentrate on my camera, keeping focus, keeping the sound levels right. It wasn't. It wasn't out of professionalism. It was out of just. I don't know pushing my mind onto something else, something else to think about. And I didn't have to worry too much about the next footstep, which could have been my last.
0: It sounds like mindfulness in a war zone.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it, 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 it was just to, to you just had to concentrate on, on the job in hand. Otherwise, if you let your mind run riot, you, you, you're going to freeze to the spot. And especially then when you've got... The chats are coming in because obviously we were intercepting the the radio channels and we were hearing that we, there were insurgents um uh, groups around watching us. we knew we were being watched and they were and they probably knew we were listening to them, so they were talking about ambushes and and um uh, what, what, one <laughs> number one point um the uh the interpreter we had with him Mohammed, is a great guy. He was always telling me what the insurgents were saying because he had the radio, and he was saying, and I was saying, "What, What are they saying? What are they saying?" And I was recording what he was telling me. And then they, there was a there was a lot of chatter coming through as we were walking through this um, this enemy area. Ah, uh, well, it's all the enemy area. And I said, no, Mohammed, what are they saying?" And he said, uh, oh, it's all right, Chris, no, don't worry. I'll tell you later." And I thought, "Well, come on, tell me. No, no, I'll tell you later. Tell you later. Anyway." We got back to forward operation, back to the base. I said, what was that all about, man? Why didn't you tell me what was going on? He said, well, I'll tell you now. They were saying, kill the cameraman. And after that, how did they now have a cameraman? Well, I had a camera, but actually that was quite a small camera. It, what the giveaway was, I was in a blue helmet, not a camouflage helmet. Mm. And from that day onwards, I always wore camouflage. Because <laughs> actually, standing out with a blue helmet, is that you're a soft target. And they thought that would be a it'd be quite a coup to to you know kill a BBC cameraman or whatever. But that that was is
0: funny, up. isn't it? That is is that kind of peacekeeping forces, isn't it? Or or uh, sorry, non combatants wear the blue helmet. And yeah, in yeah. there are no rules though when you're in Afghanistan. I don't do you know what I mean? They they don't care about the... no no. I mean, there's guys on our side don't care about the Geneva Convention. I'm certain. <laughs> I'm certain you're your enemy didn't well that's right but you, you know you go out there and you think
1: uh, okay I've done the training I've got my green lid but I'm not a real raw marine um and and I'll be fine because they're not going to shoot me uh, I, you're sort of you feel like emotionally you're out of the game you're there to observe but you're not if you're there you're there you
0: have to you have to deal with whatever's coming your way but you know I, I was lucky did, were you a one-man band over there? Did you have to do all your producing and we? So yeah, I,
1: I always operate on my own. Um, so, so I, I do all my camera work, my own camera work and recording, and that's um, again, that's much easier in a as a as a war correspondent or filmmaker operating alone, carrying everything on your own back, rather than having a crew with two, three, four people. You are then much more of a target on the one hand, but actually more importantly, you are having to be looked after by minders, by military minders, by other Royal Marines who should be concentrating on much more important work, their own job, rather than looking after um, soft soft civvies, so to speak. So uh, it was much easier for me and much easier for the Marines to have me alongside them as a one-man
0: band. And so it must have been on your mind, Chris, all the time. Every time you set foot on patrol, there was the potential that you're going to film the guy in front of you going bang and bits flying everywhere. How did that fit in with your kind of filmmaker's mind? Um,
1: it's, it, was, it was part of the reality that I, I knew I was facing. You know, I, I, I saw somebody... Terrible things. Um,
0: had you? i mate, Sorry, I probably I put you on the spot there a bit, so I didn't mean to do that. What I meant is, had you like a line that you'd drawn that right? If this happens, it, it's going to be filmed, but it's not obviously going to make the final cut. I mean, you're producing for the networks anyway, right? So they can have their level of what they can show and what they can't. But you know it. It's a big thing, isn't it? If The guy in front of you steps on a landmine or, or gets blown up by an IED. Are you, you? You must be torn. Then, am I? Am I? Obviously, I'm, I'm sure your first response would be to help the person. You know, first aid, obviously, fellow Marine. But then, of course, from an observer's point of view, that's kind of action. That's what you're there to to
1: no, I mean I, I, I knew myself, and the and the guys knew I was there to do a job. I, I you know, the mortar man had his job to do. um I had my job to do, and that was to film what was going on. um But it, it's all you've got to take life as it comes in in a, in a war zone. And if somebody was injured, of course, I'm not going to stand by and fil- film him as he's bleeding. I'm going to get in there with the morphine and the and and, and the band- bandages, and I've. What they've got and do, do what I again was was trained to do, as they would do for me if I if I caught it up. Um, but having said that, within reason, I had to keep filming. So when there was an ambush, when there was an attack, when we went in, all guns blazing, uh, you know, I was I was filming as best I, as best I could. Um, yeah. So it, it was, a, but it was a balance, and one would not, well, I would never have neglected to look after a, um a, a comrade, as I, i'm proud to call
0: uh, you don't need you don't need to explain that to a fellow marine mate <laughs> no, of course not. Um, well, did you film any bangs did you film vices ied or or am i just is that my mind playing tricks on me i didn't
1: film vices. sight i did film bangs yeah and, and um and and bullets hailing in coming in and far too close for to comfort uh, so all, all of that good stuff but no with Vicey I did um, I spent a lot of time with Vicey he was one of my main characters if you like and, and because he is the main character he is, he's, 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 he's born to it um, no he's a great guy and I, so I featured him in a series I did called Royal Marines Mission Afghanistan 2011 and um, the last thing I said to uh, the last thing bice said to me before i was out of there um, it's an, an incredibly kinetic uh, area of nadi ali a um, place called Toki. Um, he said it's it's all it's a lottery it's it's uh, it's just chance you know it's it's all about statistics and um the day is going to come when your luck runs out and i filmed that and um i used that in the one of the second or third films in the series because the next thing, I, I, heard, I went, but I heard Vicey had caught it up and was very badly injured and actually died twice on the helicopter and he was brought back. And um, so, although I didn't film the actual bang that did for him, um, it, the story was told nonetheless. And then, of course, as you know, because you spoke about it with Vicey last week, I then followed Vicey uh, throughout, for, for, as he was getting well, coming through convalescence and, of course, having his leg chopped off. And I followed that whole story through, having got to know him well and we developed a friendship. And a want well, a relationship of trust. You can't make film without trust, as you know. You've got to have trust both sides. And he let me, bless him, he let me follow him through the whole deal. I was in that operating theatre. He was out cold. I filmed every second of the amputation of his leg and showed it in the film.
0: Yes. What a powerful film that was as well. Bloody hell.
1: Well, only powerful because Vice is the man he is. And I was very privileged, uh, yet again, to be allowed to access to his world. But And it was to tell his story. But actually, I, I hope that his story comes over to other people who are having a deal, whether they're military or not. Everybody's got challenges in life. And I think Vice's great kind of message to the world is you, you can get through stuff. Mm. If you, If you've got it here and you've got the support of your friends and your family, you know, there's a way through. There's a way through stuff.
0: It's funny. When I did my podcast with Paul Vicey, when we were off camera, he said to me, Chris, I come across as this macho guy. He said, but to be honest, all the time I was over there, I really wanted my mum. And uh, the worst thing about his deployment is he had to leave his teddy bear at home. (laughs) <laughs> uh, sorry, Paul. I probably shouldn't have said that, but, <laughs> uh, but that,
1: that, I think that's what's great about the Marines. They're all, all, all um, tough, hairy he- blokes, but actually, the, the great thing about the Royal Marine for me um, is that there is a, it, there is a, there's a titanium hard out, outer core, but there's always a soft centre, um, and I think that that comes partly with the training as well. Mm. Uh, I think that's not that's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, I've still got my teddy bear at home. He comes everywhere with me.
0: <laughs> I've got a Cindy doll. I'm not lucky enough to have a teddy. I borrow my son's Cindy doll. <laughs> I don't know why my son's got a Cindy doll, but he has. <laughs> He's been in some of my videos as well. Some of the old school lot. I don't think they like that. <laughs> so, Chris, did you? Um, Did you suffer any trauma yourself? What mechanisms do you use to kind of deal with that? Uh, Well,
1: I've never been asked that before. You put me on the spot a bit there, Chris.
0: Well, I mean, you know, we live in a very real world. You're a very real guy. I certainly know I am. And I believe in talking the truth. And, you know, I... (sighs) Obviously, I, I did drugs and alcohol pretty much every day for 27 years, Chris, you know.
2: Mm.
0: And that was when I look back at that, probably that was masking a lot of trauma that I went through from a very young age.
2: Mm.
0: I think now for what I'm learning through the podcasting, speaking to literally hundreds of people a day, even if it's by sort of comments on my videos and, and emails and stuff. You know, a lot of people are dealing with stuff, you know, they're dealing with it or or they're trying to, or they're doing what I did, which is kind of masking. I mean, I wasn't, don't get me wrong. I wasn't always masking it. Sometimes I was off raving. It was bloody brilliant. Um, But, but yeah, I just.
2: Your question. Um, I thought. um, I thought I was all right.
1: But it was my wife who recognized that I wasn't all right a couple of years ago, I guess guessed that. Mm-hmm. Um, and she bless her, um, you know, she she, she recognized that not not all was was, was right, as I say. i have gone through I'd come through oof, 20 years of operating in various war zones, Afghan being just one of them. I did a lot of work in Africa and various places of combat civil wars and, and actually also famine zones and, and and just horrific stuff and um yeah so anyway yeah okay i'll be i'll be upfront about it i was diagnosed with ptsd two years ago and had incredible treatment um from a wonderful lady who, who uh, really sorted me out and um yeah I, I think it was that thing of i wasn't admitting to myself that there was a the problem it took those that loved me to say, Chris, you yeah, you've got a problem, mate. Uh, so I thought it, and I'm very grateful for it. And um, it's a journey that I'm glad I took. But, my God, there were some dark times. Because it's about, it's that cumulative effect of experiencing stuff, seeing stuff, seeing horror, yes. Being frightened, you know, it, it builds within you. And you 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 put on a front to everybody, including yourself. I'm not frightened, I can deal with this, but actually it eats away. And um I think probably one of the things that got me down more than anything else, apart from seeing some of my friends mutilated and killed in, in war zones, was um were the great famines of the mid-80s when I attended when I was filming them and actually working amongst the people of Ethiopia and Sudan and seeing tiny babies, dead or dying babies in their mother's arms. And you you deal with it, I'm a professional, I'm reporting this, I want to tell the world, blah, blah, blah. But it it gets, it's in here. It's in here. And um, it catches up. And um, that's why I would, you know, anybody watching this who maybe think they have a problem and it might be military or not, doesn't matter. If you've been through stuff and there's something niggling away inside you, get, see somebody. There's people out there, some fantastic people out there, and you can come through it. And you don't have to resort, you know, Chris, as, as you did, to to the bottle or to anything else. Mm-hmm. That is one way, of course. Um, and lots of people do find that way. Other people, a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, who, who I won't name, he um, was an ex next. Book, Nick? and he had identified the tree and the branch of that tree from which from which he was going to hang himself eventually um thank god he didn't and it was the love of his two boys that prevented him from doing it but he he was ready he was ready to, he was ready to swing
0: mm. yeah. that's the thing we can take from this is i i spoken to several of these people that well when I spoke to Dave Radband, who was a uh, special forces support group, he make, makes no secret the fact he tried, I think he tried to kill himself three times. Um, his family had to cut him down one time, which is just about, you know, worst scenario. I think you can ever think of as a bloody parent or a wife or, or a, certainly a child. Um but what can we take from it well what we can take from it is these people have moved on and it's not like that for them anymore so for friends out there brothers sisters if you're struggling remember pain is temporary it's always temporary there's a light further on you might not have seen it yet but it's there and you've got to remember that and the first way of tackling it is, like chris says reach out reach out I'd say reach out to a professional like Rock to Recovery or one of these groups, simply because you can reach out to a friend. You might not get the response that's the most helpful if they are not really a trained professional. But um,
1: yeah. And actually the, and the professionals know that there, and PTSD is, there, are very, there are very strains of PTSD and they can be treated in slightly different ways and the professionals understand that. then I would say this, Chris. Um, another series I made, which I'm really proud of, having having done it, having made it, it's called War Torn Warriors. And I followed some very badly injured necks, um, war marines, uh, uh, up to uh, Everest Base Camp. Mm. These boys, like Ben McBean, the legendary Ben McBean, some, some of your viewers might well know or recognise, um, double amputee, um, blown up by IED. And, um, and, and others as well, we went up together. We, we trekked up to base camp, you know, with metal legs and metal arms, and, uh, but they got there. And that, that, the achievement uh, meant a lot to the, to the boys and girls, because um, we, had, we had Royal Navy personnel with us as well. And then, and actually uh, a handful of these very badly uh, injured Marines then climbed a 6,000 meter peak it was quite extraordinary to see this, um, and it was. And they came back proud as punch, and and absolutely um, invigorated and renewed, reborn. Um, and part, partly that was because they did it together. They got that that togetherness back. So I think a lot of lads leave the corps, for example, don't they, Chris? And one of the things that they miss most is 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 the bonding. Is that is the comradeship. And they're bereft without it. So sometimes you need to, you need to, you do need to reach out for your mates. If, it, if it's not to actually say, oh my God, it's all going wrong and help me. It's just, just to have a beer. Mm.
0: Yeah. It's interesting you say, because I wa- worked in war-torn Mozambique country, just riddled with war, played with landmines. And it to make you wonder, we live quite a sheltered life here in bloody Britain, you know. Um, I mean, I, I could give you numerous instances, but one time I found our, our cleaning lady. Sounds a bit grand, doesn't it? Cleaning lady. But over there, it's just the way things were. We were volunteer workers, so we weren't working for any money. I was teaching street kids. Um and we'd get this wonderful woman, Ancha would come in and she'd dust and, you know, and her, her buddy would cook our sort of food. I think basically it was so cheap to hire a local and they got so much out of it because they're earning more than anyone else in the village by doing it. That's why, why, why we, well, I'm, I think I'm making excuses here because rural Marines normally clean, clean up for themselves. But anyway, <laughs> anyway. The thing was, I found her crying one day, just cowering behind one of our buildings, and I was like, "Ancho, what's wrong?" I'm obviously speaking in Portuguese, which was the colonial language over there, and uh, her like nephew had been buried that morning. Whereas over here, you know, if your nephew was buried, you'd have a week off work, or you'd, you know, she 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 buried the kid two hours ago, and now she's back up work and it was another time i was wandering through the 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 village where i worked it was all just mud huts it was very very rural kind of africa it's just a bit like we used to watch in the tarzan films when we were a kid Mm. and i came across this woman outside one of the mud huts and she she called me over and i think she was like money or something and and she invited me in the hut I can't, I can't quite, it was a long time ago. But anyway, I went in this mud hut. Her baby was in there. It was about maybe two years old. And this baby's face was hanging off like that. The face of the baby was hanging off. And you you could look behind the face and see the skull and its eyes. And it was also matter of fact, Chris like this woman wasn't like begging me help my child you know it was like this is what they lived with you know all their food came in grain sacks with either the un or like god bless the usa on it which is probably another political story again um and it was just my god you know all i could do was just give her all the money in my pocket and say go to the hospital you know they didn't even think though. Well, they wouldn't go to hospitals because that costs money, and even yeah. the pittance it might cost for medication. They well, they didn't have much, they had no money, so it wasn't it like yeah. it wasn't an option. You know, um, I think I think the of poverty destitution is something that we
1: don't really understand in this country. We 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 obviously had very needy needy people. Um, but I, I, was, I did some work over in um, East Africa two years ago amongst the uh, famine victims in, in northeast east um, Kenya, the district. And there I, I, I discovered something really extraordinary and very surprising and quite shocking. The destitute, the poverty-stricken um, of, of, the, uh, of the farming community out there, the young men, fighting-age males, if you like, They were instantly recruited following a famine by Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda. And it suddenly struck me. There's no better recruiting sergeant than a famine. Mm. Because they come along and these men who have lost their cattle, lost their animals, lost their wherewithal, lost their future. They say, well, hold on. Here's $10. Here's a a Kalashnikov. And here's a purpose. Um, And here's some food.
2: I tell you what, if I was one of those young men, I would probably join
1: up. Why wouldn't you? You're not going to start worrying about anything else other than there's there's a way out of this horror uh, and a a form of destitution and and poverty that we we can't imagine. We just can't imagine.
0: And you've spent... You mentioned, was one of your first documentaries in Africa, did you say, or you studied there as an anthropologist?
1: No, I, I worked there as an anthropologist. Um, my first job was as an anthropologist uh, working amongst a tribe, the Acholi tribe of southern Sudan, uh, during this Sudanese civil war. And um, it was to try and understand. So I lived with them for 14 months to try and understand the best way of um, help, helping them with Foreign aid coming in. Foreign aid is often come, floods in, and it's badly used. It's badly um, applied, and can do more damage than 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 um, than good. So, you know sometimes you, if you can, you send in an anthropologist to to understand the culture, understand the ways people think, and that you can you can help them in that way. So that I wasn't. A, I, I came to filmmaking quite late in life. Actually, I wasn't. I was in my late thirties before I started filming um so up to that point i was a practicing applied anthropologist
0: yeah Yeah, we could talk probably more about aid i heard after live aid there was you know thousands of tons of grain was pouring into um was it ethiopia wasn't it ethiopia and sudan yeah yeah and and, um ethiopia at the time i saw it coming in Apparently, loads of it just sat rotting on the docks because there was no provision for it when it got there.
1: Well, the are the three, three things happened, Chris. First of all, yes, you're absolutely right. A lot of it just sat there with nowhere to go because they didn't think about logistics. You know, they needed the military there um, because it, it, it came to the ports, flooding in, but no, no lorries to take it to the next stage. Some was diverted to the DERG, to, to the Ethiopian army um and yet some did get through and actually quite a lot got through and what happened it got through it was given out and so the farmers came to get the the handouts and didn't plant for the next season mm-hmm. so you the the you had a rollover effect and so you had another season of of um despair people don't think through the logistics of eight applying aid and uh, that's why i think that you know we do we sometimes should rely more on the, the military mind because the military mind is used to logistics thinking logistically and strategically and tactically and sometimes they can teach a thing or two to to the so-called professionals or experts in aid application that's one of my hobby horses <laughs>
0: it, it's interesting that when I again when I was in Mozambique you know we, we're there our title was development instructors and in these rural villages and it really makes you question what is development because if you you know you put a water tap or a well in one of these villages the next thing you've got coca-cola trucks rocking up and they're putting i mean some of the villages had a coca-cola machine they didn't have running water Mm. and then you've got to go what is development you know what what is are we trying to make them like this mess we've got at home of just ugly urbanization and economic growth at all costs, which just then destroys the...
1: the ah, yeah, but what's interesting, Chris, you, you, again, you're absolutely spot on with that. But um, what I saw when I was living with the Acholi tribe, a, a very traditional tribal um, group, that it was all about being together. It, that being is more important than having. And that's something we've forgotten in our society, except now. COVID-19 has taught us a lesson or two. Mm. Suddenly, we're actually helping each other. We're being sensitive to each other. We're talking to each other, even if it might be remotely, it doesn't matter. Um, and I think we're rediscovering the importance of being rather than having. And I hope when we come through to the other side of this contagion, we will learn learned a lesson or two because we certainly needed to learn it
0: john lennon sang about this 40 bloody years ago why didn't why didn't we listen to him then okay. <laughs> gosh so um what's the most kind of what's the closest run in then um, i bet you've had loads in your career have you, has there ever been a time you thought oh my god i'm gonna buy the farm now <laughs> um
1: yeah yeah i mean it it it's been it's been a, a, a fantastic career and i I've, I've loved every minute of it but it's been it's had a, it's had its moments obviously um the the war stuff was uh was 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 pretty exciting to say uh but i've done a lot of work I, i'm i'm fascinated by hazard um and that's the perception of hazard what why people what how people react to natural hazard not just not just man made hazard like war but why do people live in the hurricane zone or in the path of tornadoes, or where forest fires are going to strike, and so I spent a lot of time in these areas looking at looking at exactly that, and so i've had to so and and in order to understand that went have to wait for hurricanes, to uh, tornadoes to pass through. I followed hurricanes to, to 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 you know right right to the some conclu- their conclusion if you like and fire and um forest fires as well wildfires. So um, there have been a couple of occasions when I've uh, I thought, oh, Chris, this is, your number's on this one, your name's on this particular bullet, but um, pull, pulled through. It's, uh, but, uh, yeah, and um, I, th- I think probably the, the closest I've ever been to, to, to buying it, if you like, is, was actually following the monsoon out in Indi- India when I was taken out by a, a freak wave and hurled down a drain into in, in, in a breakwater and um I I, I I couldn't i wasn't getting out i was i knew i was drowning i could feel i was drowning i was sucking in the water and then uh, a, an indian guy was with me he just reached down and physically a big guy just pulled me out he just pulled me out and pumped my heart pumped my lungs and got me going again so, so that's, that's the closest i've ever been
0: Water can have that effect on you, can't it? It can instantly that 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 make you think, "Oh my god, I am gonna die." yeah, <laughs> had, yeah. it's it's that
1: quick. It's just, that quick. What would you
0: one gulp in, and you yeah yeah. Like I have, I've had, I've had similar surfing. I've probably had that feeling a few times in my life in water, where you just get pinned down, and it it's well, you just you think that's it. That is it. Yeah. Gosh. So let's talk about your books, Chris, because you're a published author. You've you've written a few books now, haven't you?
1: I'm finishing my. I've just finished my fourth book. Oh, um, yeah. Um, so uh, all about the about military. Uh, the first one, HMS Brilliant, about my time on a frigate during the Yugoslavian War, 1994 five. Um, then I wrote another book called Shipmates, which is about life in Devonport and on on, on some of the ships going out to um, uh, you know do on their patrols around the world. Um, then I then I wrote Commando, which is about my time training with with the bootnecks and my time in Afghan. And I'm just finishing a book now called How to Build an Aircraft Carrier, uh, which is actually about uh, my time on HMS Queen Elizabeth. I spent the last three years uh, working on 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 our biggest ever warship.
0: And how long has that been in service? I'm a little bit out of all this now. Age of Queen Elizabeth. Mm. Uh, Not in service yet.
1: I, I followed her through from the cutting of her first steel up in Glasgow in 2009. I was there to film that. And I followed her all the way through to her launching and her first sea trials of Scotland and then her first Uh, air trials, taking on the F-35 over in America. And next year, 2021, she goes on her first um, active deployment, and I'll be on her again then. So my first two series I've made, called Britain's Biggest Warship, um, Series 1 and Britain's Biggest Warship Goes to Sea, Series 2, has been all about getting her ready. It might not sound very exciting, but it bloody was, I'll tell you.
0: It's Mm. immense, the work that must go into it. Well, the, work, the work that goes into it to build it but also just to
1: operate it and to learn how to operate it these things don't come with a driver's manual you have to learn you have to take it out and learn how to mm. drive the damn thing it doesn't always do what it's meant to do and uh, so the um, the boys and girls have to work it out for themselves and things don't always go according to plan things on warships have the tendency to, 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 to leak and to blow up and have fires and all that, all that stuff and uh, you just got to deal
0: with it yeah, I was on a, an aircraft carrier for a year of my life, and it was like I still think of that as the best year of my life. Yeah. Sailing around the world, not a care in the world. Yeah. Um, we had attempted murder on board. That was fun. No, it, actually, it was quite horrendous for the individual involved. For what? Um, yeah, we had a, somebody in our ship's company We were the first ship to have females on board. Or we might not have been the first ship, but we were that first wave of when they said Wrens can now go to sea. Mm. And we had a medical officer. Um, So I I can't remember. She wasn't like a quorn. I think she was actually, a. it doesn't really matter, but she was the equivalent of, say, like a captain or something, right? And she was great fun. She was a, a, a wonderful woman, friend to all of us. We would all go ashore and, you know, have drinks together. And one night, somebody stole into her cabin and smacked her over the head. I think it was about eight times with a ball peen hammer. So, obviously, attempted murder. And, well, I think you know yourself, Chris, only these kind of weird things can go on in the forces these kind of really i say two things in life you know bizarre things happen in hong kong and bizarre things happen in the marines and this was one of my marine stories fortunately um obviously she survived um we had a the the reason i say it's funny is we had to reenact the scenario obviously without somebody doing this we all had to go to where we would have been on that night well to be honest i think it was two in the morning so everyone would have been in in you know been in their beds or their bunks um and so we're, we're all there was 12 of us marines on this ship of it was about 2000 people when we went to sea it was actually a bit, bit more than that we just sat in our mess deck listening to the tannoy and whoever it was on the town is going, right. The I can't remember why they referred to him. It wasn't a murderer because he didn't kill her, but it was like the attacker is now coming down Sea passageway. He's now entering the and we're like, you're making all this up because no one really we still didn't know like who had done it, right? And um, in the end, I think they narrowed it down to a jilted stoker. I don't know if anyone was ever prosecuted and then weirdly fast forward two years when I was serving in Plymouth, the, um, the uh, CID or whoever it is, came into work one day and pulled me out of it. Um, In fact, no, it was the, the Marines police came and got me from my work, took me up to their office and, and there were two CID there waiting for me and they just, literally like the old 70s doc, um, series we used to watch on telly they just started the good good guy bad guy routine on me where were you on this day where were you here and i'm like what 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 you got to tell me what am i supposed to well a woman not far from where i lived had been attacked she'd been hit over the head with a hammer and her i think it was her husband or former husband had served on HMS Invincible. And somehow the police computer had cross-referenced this hammer, invincible Plymouth, and, and because I, I, you know, I matched all this criteria. Don't don't ask me how um, my my name came up. So I'm there with the police, who then took me home because I had to prove, like, where I was on this day. And um, yeah, I'm having to prove I didn't mur- <laughs> didn't murder someone, which. Fortunately, I was. Um, I had a receipt for a fishing rod at the time. The woman was um, was a, this woman was a, another attempted murder, and I had a receipt. I I bought a fishing rod on that day at that exact time. So, alibi. I... Yes. Funny, interesting. Yes. Let's talk about this legendary speed march. How did that come around? What's the 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 history behind it? So it's a is it it's a marathon
1: distance? Yeah, it's um well the the attempt at the world record uh, there are ver- there are various types of world speed march uh, world records but the one that uh, the, the Royal Marines wanted to um, win back for themselves I mean because speed marching yomping is is what Royal Marines do um, <clears throat> was a yeah full marathon uh, carrying forty pounds on their backs. Uh, and in um, combat boots and run, not um, and, and combat gear, mm. and yeah. So and the I've been with the Royal Marine team. I think th- three efforts to try and crack this record. Um, and the first one, the first time they tried it, I can't remember the date, but it was um, well a good few years ago. They they did a good run but failed. They did, you know hands up, they didn't get it. Second time. Um, you, the thing is, all eight men that start have to finish and have to finish as one speed marching. And one guy went down a quarter mile to go and actually nearly died; they had to take him to hospital. But because only seven um, crossed the line in good in good time, they would have cracked the would have smashed the record. It, it didn't stand. The third time, and this is the film I made uh, uh, much more recently, uh, the guys came through and. But, uh, and broke, smashed the world record, and were disqualified. And unbelievably, um, Guinness Book of Records said they were wearing the wrong trousers. Um, they should have been wearing the same trousers that were worn in the and the world record was smashed or was first set rather uh, 20 years ago. There's a military denim, if you remember those. They don't, they're not made anymore. Anyway, it was just one of those things that the it's a, it's a box that needed to be ticked, it wasn't. Um, but as far as the boys were concerned, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as the great Scotty Mills, who led the boys, who trained the boys, um,
0: they got that world record. It's theirs, really.
1: And everybody recognises that. Except
0: yes, can, of course. The records. Yes, um, that was a very bizarre turnaround. Scotty's a, a very old friend of mine we go back gosh 19, 1989 I think I first met Scotty and he's really he's done well in the Royal Marines doesn't he to go for oh. I mean Mr motivator or what
1: he's a he's a great guy one, one of the best and, and he's just so good at motivating uh, young guys in fact I first met him when uh, I was making commander on the front line back in 2006 um, and he was in Hunter Company looking after the broken Marines and putting them back together again, both in body and mind. And he, there's nobody better at doing that than Scotty. And he was and he got those lads over that line. And, and they, they, you know, Never mind the trousers. He, he, he made he, he was behind those boys breaking that world record. And uh,
0: how, how did he he was running along telling them sto- motivating stories the whole way, as well as pointing out the landmark, right? This is London Bridge. This is, you know, oh, yeah. Palace. and he's given this whole, like, because he's from London originally, right? Yeah. He's, he's uh, South London,
1: he's, uh, he's from Lambeth. And actually, when we came to Lambeth, he started singing the Lambeth song. The Lambeth <laughs> actually sped up then, I think to get away from his singing voice, but uh, <laughs> no, he, he, he didn't stop. He was motivating, and um, talking all the way through, and um, yeah, incredible guy, incredible guy.
0: I mean, most people, a lot lot of people wouldn't even consider a marathon. He's doing it, he's got combat boots on, and he's talking, and he's got to keep up with these guys, and they were extremely, extremely fit, weren't they?
1: Oh my God, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as fit as any international athlete. I mean, they say that to get through the commando course, you've got to have have approached the level of fitness of an an international athlete. But those boys were beyond that. And you run a marathon with 40 pounds on your back, please.
0: Mm. (laughs) And uh, Scotty, if you're watching, can I have that tenner back, mate, please? (laughs) Yeah, no, massive credit. Major Mills was was a recruit. So he was a marine, like a, a non-commissioned officer that rose through the ranks, and um, yeah, amongst core legends, Scotty is definitely one of them, isn't he? He is
1: yeah.
0: the real um, ambassador for the core. Yeah. Him and Phil Gilby, which we should we should say? Yeah, Phil. Sure. Yeah, Core yeah. RSN. Both mm-hmm. both of those guys, I I joined up with back in the day. Yeah, I and mean, there are so many legends, aren't there?
1: Um, and and. You know they, and they really are they're, they're and the thing is the thing the wonderful thing about the phil gilbys and the scotty mills is that once they left the core it's not lost because they bring that determination that ethos they bring that marine thing and they bring it to to sydney street uh, and i've always said the the royal marines ethos the the determination unselfishness loyalty cheerfulness in the face of adversity all that good stuff if we could bottle that and sprinkle it around society in general the world would be a better place and that that's that's sounds like i'm preaching now but i really believe
0: that i know you say it chris you say it so let's um if we're going to recommend to our our viewers and our listeners your documentaries what what sort of let's pick three because obviously if we pick too many (laughs) then they'll get lost in the ether but what three would you recommend
1: um, let me think. What three would I recommend? Do you mean mil- oh, military ones?
0: It doesn't matter. What What are you proud of? What would you like people to watch of 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 your um, portfolio?
2: Um, well, I'm, I'm obviously very proud of the ones I've made
1: with the Royal Navy and the Royal Marines. They're, they're, they they uh, they're kind they're of up there with. Um, in, in terms, of if I look back on my career, that, that's what I'd say. I'm probably. Proudest of, but in terms of individual films, um, I think that there's one film called Tito's Story. It's actually about an 11-year-old Indian boy who was autistic, and I went out to India to to see him. He he had no communication skills. He couldn't talk very well, uh, and he had no kind of coordination, all over the place. But he had this incredible ability to, to to write deep philosophical poetry uh, It's quite extraordinary. And I'd still, that was, he was 11 when I made the film. He's now nearly 30. I'm still in touch with him, uh, Tito. Um, and I just, I learned so much from that boy. It, it, despite all his problems, um, something from deep within shone through. And I, I, I like to think I captured some of that on film. So that that's just a film I'm, I'm particularly, proud of. Mm-hmm. And the, the other film that I'm proud of having made, and I'm actually now making a, an update to it, in fact, but you can't see it, but it's uh, all my editing equipment's behind, behind, in front of me behind you. Um, it's called, uh, the first film was Alison's Last Mountain. It was a story of Alison Hargreaves, who was one of the greatest ever British mountaineers. She summited Everest, the first woman to summit Everest without oxygen solo, um, unaided, and and then she went straight out to K2, the second highest mountain in the world, two months later, summited, and then was just blasted off the face of that mountain by a huge 200-mile-an-hour storm and was never found. I went out there then, two months later, with her children, Tom and Kate, Tom 6, Kate 4. Dad took them out to say goodbye to their mum. Very moving film, Alison's Last Mountain. 25 years later, last year, Tom, who I first knew when he was six, became an incredible mountaineer, a phenomenal mountaineer in his own right. He'd summited all six of the big alpine peaks in one winter season, um, climbed solo, probably the most talented mountaineer that I've ever seen. And he went out to Nanga Parbat in the Himalayas last February, uh, sorry, February 2019 in preparation to climb K2, the mountain that killed his mother. And he was killed. Uh, he he was again, uh, killed by an avalanche, and he didn't. Um, 25 years later, the son um, now lives. still. He's still up there, but he wasn't recovered. Alison's still up there. She was never recovered. And they are in, in the same mountain chain. Bizarrely, they died pretty much the same age in their early 30s. So that's the film I'm making now. I went, I went back out to Mangaparbat with Kate, the sister, who was four when I first met her, she's now 28. And we went out together to pay her life, her last respects to Tom. So that's an incredibly moving, emotional film, and it's to do with it's not actually to do with mountaineering at all. It's, it, that's the backdrop. It's about it's about family, it's about love, it's about grief, and it's about dealing with inevitable that which is going to catch up with all of us sometime okay. so um yeah, sorry that's a bit heavy but i mean the, these uh, are the, it,
0: uh, you know my philosophy is it's like the gurkhas say isn't it you know you're better to live life as a lion than as a coward or some something something along those
1: that's that, enough because alison hargreaves mantra was better to live um you know a day as a tiger than a, a thousand years as a donkey or sheep, yeah. That, 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 that is a, a Tibetan mantra. Mm. But but you know, just to lighten the mood a little bit, um, the, the the other film or series that I'm very proud of is one I made on a cruise ship. It's actually called The Cruise. I made it in 1998, and I went and spent um, four months on a cruise ship in the Caribbean, um, just about life on on board on board this luxury cruise ship. Um, to be honest, if you gave me a choice, I would sooner spend my time on a warship. <laughs> but say, well, it was a diverting uh, four months, and um, I made a, a series of BBC One that was that averaged thirteen million every night. Back in the day, we were getting those sorts of figures. And if, if viewers recognise the name Jane McDonald, who, who's now quite well known um, for the she's thing on documentaries making for Channel Five, well, I discovered Jane and. Uh, she, she first came to the attention of the British public through, through, through that series. And that, but that was obviously very light hearted. Having said that, it was still about people who had hopes and dreams. I think that's what fascinates me most about life, I guess. It's about people who have ambition, have hopes, have dreams and do their best to achieve those,
0: those dreams. Like I'm always saying, my, my friends at home will get sick of it. You get one life, you live it right. One is enough.
1: <laughs> it is because as far as I'm saying you don't get a second chance so make, make the most of this one
0: Chris my last um, point I was going to say what project you're on now and you very kindly uh, cu- covered that mate thank you is that a Rolex on your on your wrist? it, it is yeah
1: yeah. it's, it's one. Uh, it's, it's the one thing I've always wanted since the, since a the boy when I first started reading the James Bond books I thought I could have although I think he had an, an Omega but nonetheless it felt like James Bond to me <laughs>
0: They are funny. I've got. Well, um, I'm on my second Rolex now, and for anyone listening, it's nothing. It's not a materialistic thing at all. Or maybe it was when I was 19 when I, I bought my first one after Northern Ireland. I think it was. I had to hock it in Hong Kong uh, when I was homeless in Hong Kong. So I walked into a pawn shop on the Nathan Road, and they gave me about a thousand pounds for a watch that five or so years before I paid. Thirteen hundred for so it wasn't oh. a yeah it it did me all right. Mind you, I've
2: got
1: to pretend. I've got to pretend Rolex that I got in Thailand back in God knows when thirty years ago, and that that's bloody good watch actually. It cost me I don't know ten dollars. It looks like the real thing, and it keeps good time. I mean, it's it's yeah. It's, I
0: wear it and, and oh, I, the, I bought one in I think in Singapore, and it's like really bloody hell, it's just like my real one. Yeah. I, yeah. My next one, I, I was in Raffles Hotel in Singapore. I was just on my world travels and um, I noticed there were the jewellers in there and I walked past the window. and Lo and behold, there's my watches in the window. Not, not the same watch, but Rolex Sea-Dweller. Ridiculous price, 2,700 quid.
2: Yeah.
0: And something about the fact that when I hopped the first one, I was down on my luck. I was chronically addicted to crystal meth. I was mentally unwell. And now, like I'm back on my feet, I'm out there smashing it. That's my. I'm got. I've got to have it. It's. It was symbolic. That's all it was. It was. And I bought it. And I'll be honest. I didn't even look at it. It. And it, I don't even know what. I think it's somewhere around the house now. It's about. If you'd have buy that watch now, it's about eight thousand pounds. And I've got it. I. I like this one. It's Casio G-Shock. Oh, yeah. Very practical.
1: Yeah. I'll go on with
0: waterproof i think to 40 meters um got an alarm casio if you're looking for a bit of sponsorship <laughs> i'm your man <laughs> it's just funny how uh, you know we, we change as we get older but yeah very quality watches aren't they they're just
1: well they're, they're iconic
0: aren't they? I- iconic that 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 is a word and uh coming from the man that is iconic chris thank you so much state My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, stay on the line, because I've just um, got a few things I'd like to like like to say. Um, but thank you so much uh, for your work, for your art. Thank you for what you've done for the Royal Marines. Um, massive congratulations on being the 55-year-old commando, which is, you know, <laughs> that's one. I was going to say that's one to tell the grandkids, but that's good one to tell the great, 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 Grandkids now, Chris,
1: isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'd just like to say one thing, though, Chris. Um, I, I, I hope I have done something for the, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the profile of the Royal Marines. But really, what I would like to do is thank the Royal Marines on mass and individually for the, the, the great men I've got to know, called friends, for what they've done for me. Because I really was reinvented by the Royal Marines at the age of 55. I mean, I had a pretty good life up to that point, but it was, I was reborn at 55, thanks to the Royal Marines, so I will never be able to thank them enough.
0: Thank you, Chris, and for the the fallen, we will remember you, you know, and we will keep smashing our one life. So to our friends at home, massive love to you all, please look after yourselves, please like and subscribe, that kind of helps, and we will see you for the next edition of the Bought the T-shirt podcast.